In his book entitled The Attributes of God, A.W. Pink begins his chapter on the wrath of God by saying how sad it is that so many professing Christians appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology. In other words, that in that aspect of God, in the person of God or the work of God, in that aspect, they act as though they're ashamed of God and ashamed of His actions. And they have to apologize for Him for being a God who has said that He would bring judgment upon people. Now, I can't help but wonder if there aren't a few here this morning, or perhaps some who will hear this, who might also perhaps just a little bit, maybe, feel the same way. Maybe you think that, well, Christianity would be better off if the wrath of God wasn't in the Bible. Or perhaps you think that we would be better in the spread of the gospel of God if, as Christians, we just didn't have to mention this thing about judgment or sin or wrath. You know, people would like us better. We would be able to spread the gospel more easily if we didn't have to bring up this wrath thing uh, that is sort of in the Bible. Now, when, when Pink wrote his book in the early 20th century, he said that men wouldn't go so far as to think of it, to think of God's wrath, as a blemish on Christianity. You hear that? Men wouldn't go so far to think of his wrath as a blemish on Christianity. Well, I think now they would. I think there are many pastors in pulpits today who regard the wrath of God as though it were a blemish on Christianity. As though it were so bad and so wrong that they openly refuse to preach on it. They boldly declare that they will never preach on sin, never preach against sin, never preach on the judgment of God or the wrath of God. So I say that now they must think of it as some kind of a blemish because they refuse to even mention it. Today we're going to move on to our second major heading in our study in the beauty of wrath. And we're going to begin by showing how the wrath of God is not at all something to be ashamed of. And in fact, in many instances that people just take for granted from the Word of God, they rejoice in it. This is what we are going to find in our next section as we continue in our study. So far we have only dealt with the major heading, the reality of wrath. So it's taken us like six weeks or seven weeks just to make sure that we understand that the wrath of God is in the Bible. 
It's there. The reality of the wrath of God is clear in the Bible. We talked about the common conviction that many churches have without even knowing it. They talk about being saved. You must be saved. You must experience salvation. But seldom do they tell their people that being saved is being saved from the wrath of God. That's what salvation is. It is salvation from the wrath of God. That is the common conviction in the church. We went there from there to look at the chronicle of the concept throughout the Old Testament. That and we see in the Word of God that even in the Old Testament it is replete with God's teaching that He will judge wickedness and judge unrighteousness and judge unfaithfulness. That He says it over and over again. But yet today it's almost as if those passages don't exist. We have the misconception given in our day. People say, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. But the reality is from Psalm 7, God says He is angry with the wicked every day. He doesn't say He hates the sin, but loves the sinner. He says He's angry with the sinner. This is what the Bible teaches, and it is clear in the Scriptures. We then turned our attention to the New Testament for the Christian concept of the wrath of God. And we saw first and for several weeks the plain, the clear, the unmistakable teaching of our Lord that the loving Jesus... This is something that I have to stop and mention again because we're going to go back to the Old Testament today. That people seem to think that there are at least two gods... In Christianity, the God of the Old Testament, who was a mean God. And the God of the New Testament, Jesus, who is a loving, wonderful God. Well, there are not two gods in Christianity. There is one God. And He reveals Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when you look at the Old Testament and the wrath of God, don't think Jesus wasn't there. And when you look at the New Testament, don't think the doctrine of wrath isn't there because the same God who is the God in the Old Testament is the God in the New Testament. And the loving Jesus clearly says that those who do not repent will be cast into the eternal fire. That it is better to cut off hand and pluck out eye than to go into hell for all eternity. This is Jesus. He clearly taught that there was indeed, or that there is indeed, consequences for sin and for not following Him. And then last Lord's Day, we turned to the New Testament epistles. And I ask you to turn in your Bibles again with me at this time to Romans chapter 1, where we saw the clear teaching of the Apostle Paul here to the church. Now I said last Lord's Day, and I'll say this right up front. Last Lord's Day I said there are many passages that we can turn to in the epistles to show the wrath of God still taught to the church. And there are. But what I've decided to do today is to move on from understanding the concept of the wrath of God to the church to go on from there for the next 
passage, and we'll deal with some of those passages in the New Testament under that heading. But here we saw the Apostle Paul teaching in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. We talk about the wrath of God. The word is orge in the Greek. It speaks of his anger, his indignation, and it is a display of his displeasure, his wrath. And as it speaks of it being revealed from heaven, we know that that is speaking of natural revelation, that you can see in natural revelation the beauty of God, the glory of God, the wonder and the splendor and the wisdom of God, but you can also see the wrath of God in the storms, the earthquake that hit California even this morning. It's not that we're saying that that area of California is more wicked than any other area in the world. That's not it at all. But we are saying and do say that God is in control of even such things as storms and earthquakes and that men ought to look at them and say, have mercy on us, God. This is the finger of God. But instead, today, they look at it and they say, well, that's Mother Nature. Well, it's the finger of God. It's not Mother Nature. And it is from heaven revealing the wrath of God upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness, those first four commandments of the Ten Commandments dealing with man to God. And we are all guilty of sin against God. Unrighteousness, the next six commandments, dealing with men to men, as we have interaction with men. And that is the unrighteousness of murder and lying and stealing and adultery and coveting and not even honoring father and mother. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. And the point Paul makes in this text and in the following chapters, like in chapter 3, is that we are all ungodly. We are all unrighteous. We are all unworthy. And we all deserve the wrath of God. But, thank God for the buts in the Bible. Chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were still ungodly. We were still unrighteous. We were still dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We were still lost. We were still God-haters. We were not seeking God. And yet He died for us. What an awesome and a marvelous thought. What an awesome and a marvelous truth. That God gave His Son to die for me when I was still ungodly, still unrighteous, still unworthy. And this is the gospel. Now look at it as he goes on. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we will be saved. What? Saved from the wrath of God through Him. If you ever expect to be saved from the wrath of God. It is not in Mohammed. It is not in Buddha. It is not in religion. It is in Christ Jesus alone. He is the one who died to pay the price 
that we would be saved from the wrath of God. This is why, indeed, Jesus gave His life on the cross. Now, I mentioned a few moments ago that we're going to move on from this broad aspect of the reality of wrath and the Christian concept of wrath to begin this morning to take up with the next major area, the reason for wrath. The reason for wrath. Having seen the reality of wrath, we move this morning to the reason for wrath. And the first reason that we will see today, or actually only begin to open up today, focuses on that opening illustration or those comments made by author Pink in his work on the attributes of God, saying that men today seem to be ashamed of the wrath of God. And what I want for us to see is exactly the opposite, that we should not be ashamed of the wrath of God, but rather the wrath of God manifests the glory of God we will begin to see His glory as manifested in His wrath. And I want to begin by bringing several examples of His glory seen in the deliverance of His people. So turn with me, if you would, please, back to Isaiah chapter 36. We're going to kind of go in reverse order, at least in the Scriptures not necessarily chronologically. But Isaiah chapter 36, as we see His glory in the deliverance of His people by the destruction of the Assyrians. Here in Isaiah 36, we'll begin looking at verse 1. Now it came about, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Shennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. So here we have the Assyrians coming against Israel. And in particular, and I don't have time to open this up and go through all of it, so I'm going to have to be brief and just give a synopsis and focus on a few of the passages. But here we have Assyria coming against Israel. Israel, and particularly against Jerusalem. Now, the Syrians were very powerful, a very powerful, very conquering army. They just swept through, like locusts, all of the nations around. Even the huge nations were taken over and subdued by Assyria. They were mighty and powerful at this particular time. But not only were they mighty and powerful, they were pagan. They were against the God of the Bible, against the things of the God of the Bible, against the ways of the God of the Bible. They despised our God, the God that we love. They were enemies, as we would say, against the the God of the Bible. And they worshipped such gods as Nishrach, I don't know whether you know who Nishrach was in terms of a god, small g god, but Nishrach had the head of a, 
an, a falcon, I think it was. It's a kind of a bird. I'm not sure what kind of bird it was. But it was the head of a falcon on the body of a man. And some more attributes of the bird were in the man. But this was the one of the gods, small g god, not real god, idol god, pagan god, that the uh, Assyrians worshipped. They were a pagan land, a pagan nation. And we see here in this text how they blasphemed our God. Look down to verse 13. Then Rehabesh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah, that's their king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me. Look at verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? You hear what he's saying? Where were the gods of Hamath and Arpad and all of these other places? Were their gods able to deliver them? And here he is mocking the God of the Bible. What is he doing? He is making out our God the true God, the living God, the creator God, as if he is no different than these pagan gods. He is painting the picture of the God of the Bible as if he is no different than the pagan gods of their day. The other pagan gods, their gods weren't able to deliver them. Your God won't be able to deliver you. From my hand. And so he is blaspheming God, saying he's no different than these other gods. But then, King Hezekiah, who was a good king, one of the better kings in the old, one of the few good kings, I might add, in the nation of Israel, goes to God and pleads with him. Look at verse 1 of the next chapter. Then Hezekiah heard it, and he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and entered into the house of the Lord. Now look down to verse 14 in the next chapter, chapter 37. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messenger and read it and went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. He has the threats from the king of Assyria. He takes them and he spreads them out before the Lord in the house of the Lord. That's a great picture of prayer meeting right there. I love this passage. I think of it often when I pray that we are spreading out our requests before the Lord. And particularly on Wednesday night when we come, we come to pray for the things of the kingdom, for the needs of the kingdom, for the glory of God. We spread them out before God and ask Him to hear our prayers. But this is what he did. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubim, thou art 
God, thou alone of all the kingdoms on the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Do you see the difference? Do you see the contrast? The king of Assyria, the messenger from Assyria is saying, oh, you're no different than the other gods. You're just like all these other pagan gods. But Hezekiah says, oh, no, God, you alone are God. You are the true God. You are the creator God. You know why it's so important for us to believe in creation? There are so many reasons, so many reasons that we believe in creation. If there is no creator God, then there is no God against whom you've ever sinned. And if there's no sin against God, there's no need for a Savior. There's no need for Jesus. Our religion, our Christianity is a farce. We might as well close the doors and go home. But he's the creator God. And you're going to have to answer to this creator God, even as Assyria is about to answer in a moment. And this is what Hezekiah prays before God. Oh, God, I know you are God. You're not like these other gods. You're not like these pagan gods. Do you know your God is God? Our God is God. I don't know what some of these people in some churches who worship the God of tradition or formalism or their denomination or whatever it may be, but our God is God. He is the true God. And Hezekiah prayed that. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see and listen to all the words of Shennacherib who sent them to reproach the living God. That's his mission, to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all all the countries and the lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. And now, O Lord God, deliver us from the hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that Thou alone, Lord, art God. This is a matter of of the glory of God. Who is God? Is the God of the God truly God? The God of the Bible truly God? Or is He just the same as the rest of the pagan gods? It is a matter of God's glory, a matter of God's honor. Now what happens? Verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent word to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed me about Shennacherib, king of Assyria. I won't go into the rest of what he says, but but it begins with the fact, Because you prayed to me. Because of this prayer, because of your faith, because of your tenacity in believing that I am truly God. Because of this, here's what happens. Verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the men arose early in the morning, behold, all of those were dead. 185,000 of the Assyrian army that were at the door 
of Jerusalem were dead, struck down by the angel of the Lord. Not only that, not only was their army utterly destroyed, we read on that the Shennacherib, king of the Syrians, departed, returned to his home where he lived in Nineveh, which was once helped very much by Jonah. Not anymore, though. And it came about that as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, that Adramelech and Shazazar, his sons, killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land. But they killed their own father. So he died as he was worshiping his pagan god. God utterly destroyed them and defamed and disgraced this pagan god, Nishrach. Now I ask you, isn't this exciting? This is great. This is our God who is able to deliver his people from the hand of certain death and destruction at the hand of a farly, far superior, greater army right there at the door, laying siege, no doubt, to Jerusalem. You know what a siege was like? They would block all the entrances and exits. Nobody could get in. Nobody could get out. The food would eventually be gone. The water would be gone. This is the time when, ba- when mothers eat their children and things like that that you read about in other aspects of, this, uh, of the Old Testament. This is what happened. Terrible. He even mentioned some of that, and I didn't want to read it. But it's terrible when they do that, when they lay siege on a city. And yet God miraculously delivered them. God miraculously, amazingly delivered his people, gave victory to King Hezekiah and his people. That is powerful. That is exciting. And the people of God rejoice. And they're excited about it because of what God did with his people. But now let me ask you this. What happened here? What happened here? Well, the first thing that we see is indeed the God of the Bible, our God, was glorified. Our God was shown to be God. The God of the Israelites, the God of the Bible, the true God, the creator God, to whom Hezekiah was praying, showed himself to be God. Showed that he was unique. That he was different. He's not like idols. He's not like statues. He's not like pagan gods. He's totally unique. He's the God who is living in all these churches with their foolish statues. Need to throw them on the fire and burn them up and turn and worship the living God. Our God isn't still on the cross as you see in some churches, when they show a cross, it still has Jesus on it. Jesus isn't on the cross. He rose from the dead. We have no idols. We have a God who is living. The living God. This is what he showed. He showed himself to be the true and the living God as compared to what the king of Assyria said. Did the other gods were able to deliver them? No, they weren't able to deliver them. But God did. The true God did. 
our God is God, and we rejoice, and we're excited for what God did. We're excited for his people. We're excited for the believers because of what God did. But what what did God do? What caused this victory? What brought about his glory? Verse 36, his wrath killing 185,000 of the Assyrian army. God was glorified in His powerful right hand. God was glorified by His mighty sword against the enemy. This was the powerful wrath of God against these pagans, against these God-haters. This was his vengeance upon his enemies. Make no mistake, these were enemies to God. Enemies to what we believe. Enemies to what we hold so dear. And God showed his wrath upon them. And in that, he was glorified. Here is the wrath of God bringing him Glory, And all of us see it as right and just and proper and a great victory for his people. Let's look at another. Turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 17. As we look at the defeat of Goliath. We saw the destruction of the Assyrians. Here we have the defeat of Goliath. And again, Goliath was part of this wicked, God-hating, dreaded Philistines. He was a Philistine. And that's who we find here in this passage who has come against the army of Israel. Verse 4. Well, we'll start at verse 3. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. Then the champion came out from the armies of the Philistines, named Goliath from Goth. And his uh, height was six cubits and a span. It's about nine and a half feet tall, somewhere around there. Nine, a little bit over nine feet tall. You know, nine feet doesn't sound so big, does it? You got basketball players out there, they're seven feet tall. What's nine feet? He'd be through that ceiling. Even if he was standing over here, his head would be way his head would be close to the ceiling. These ceilings are about eleven feet high. He's a pretty tall guy. That's huge. And so here he comes, and we read on a little bit further, and he's had all the bronze all over him that weighed so much, a bronze helmet on his head and clothed scale armor which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. Look at that, verse 7, is, uh, uh, and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron and uh, his shield carrier also walked before him. It's amazing. This guy was huge. And all this stuff, I don't think I could carry that spear. I really don't. Not anymore, anyway. It, it, it was huge. Now go down to verse 26 and compare this 
as we read the zeal of David. David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The zeal of David is apparent. He was one of those saved guys in the Old Testament. He said there weren't many, but there were some. Hezekiah was one. Here's another. David had zeal for his God. Look down to verse 40. He has zeal for God and he takes in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch and his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And now you all know what happens, but look down to verse 44. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. Do you see the contrast? Do you see the difference? The Philistine army with their champion Goliath stands there and says, Ha! We rely on our strength, on our might, on our armor, on my spear, on our champion, on all of these earthly, material things. David says, But I come to you in the name of the living God. Verse 46, In this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head and so on. And so what happens? As you know, indeed, David comes up to him in the zeal of the Lord and for the glory of God and he swings that sling and God directs that stone right there into the head of Goliath and the giant falls down dead. Amazing, isn't it? Wonderful, isn't it? Zealous for God. You know, before I even go on, this is the kind of zeal we need. Every single one of you men in this room needs to have this zeal for God. The zeal for the God of the Bible. That it can be seen as you lead in worship. That it can be seen in your families, in your homes. Zealous for the things of God. Jealous for the things of God in your homes, among your families, before your wife, in front of your children. Zealous for the things of the living God as opposed to the things of the world. Zealous for God even in your place of work. Standing firm for the truth of God. David had that kind of zeal for God and God honored that and God defeated the army of the Philistines that day and they routed them. And you can read on in the text how they came to chase them and they came to kill multitudes of them. God enabled a great victory against them. Verse 52 down towards the end. The men of Israel... 
The land of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines, and they just killed a bunch of them. It's a great victory for God again. A great victory. God, the true God, was glorified over the material things and the might of the Philistine army. Against the pagan gods of the Philistines, God was victorious and he was glorified again. What happened? In his wrath against the Philistines. And I ask you, isn't this passage often spoken of, even by unbelievers? You know, it's the old David versus Goliath thing, right? You know, when some guy comes up against, say, the Ford Motor Company and wins a lawsuit, or the General Motors Company, it's David against Goliath, and everybody's rooting for David, aren't they? Everybody, well, oh, David wins. David's the winner. David's victorious. How did David win? He killed Goliath. How did he do that? By the glory and hand of the living God. This is the wrath of God shown against unbelievers. The wrath of God shown against pagans. And we're rooting for the guys who win. We're rooting for the good guys. We're rooting for David over Goliath. God was again glorified in his wrath. You know, uh, no one feels sorry for Goliath. No one is lamenting that Goliath died or that Goliath was killed. We root for and love the fact that our God is a God who is mighty in bringing about victory even through his wrath. Like I said, even unbelievers talk about this. And I would imagine that maybe even Joel has preached on this passage without even realizing he was preaching about the wrath of God. You know what I'm talking about. These guys who vow that they will never preach against wrath. Well, what do they think is going on in these passages? What do they think is happening when God brings a great victory for his people? He is wielding his sword of wrath against unrighteousness and against the unrighteous. He is angry with the sinner every day. He is angry with the wicked every day. And he brought his wrath against them in these instances. Now we'll pick up with this and uh, look at a couple more next week. I, I sort of regret the fact that I have to leave here and, uh, because I want to I get into the New Testament and show you how this is picked up even in the New Testament. And next week I think I'm going to try to go more quickly through a couple more of these illustrations. But before we do go, I do want you to know that it is the same principle in Christianity. That our faith, our trust in God, saves us from this wrath. Our faith, our trust in Jesus, turns the wrath of God away from us. That's propitiation. He turns it away. And so we are delivered from His wrath. We will never incur His wrath because of what Jesus has done for us. But He has sweetly drawn us to Himself 
through the Holy Spirit, saved us by His grace, made us lovers of Him, and He has made us His children. And as His children, we will never know His wrath. And so as we look at these texts that we've seen today, we are the good guys. We are the guys that people root for. We're the King Hezekiah. We're the King David that everybody delights in seeing as winners. And even then, that God will pour out His wrath upon the unbelievers in judgment. It will show more gloriously who He is as God. And it will show more gloriously our salvation through Christ. This is what we're going to see as we continue through the reason for His wrath. Thank you, Father, for Jesus delivering us from Your wrath. Let's pray.